All right, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to Redemption Church this morning. This morning, we're continuing uh, in a series that we have called Before All Things. And specifically, we've looked at um, or come out of the book of Colossians and uh, looked at how the book of Colossians shows us that Jesus is before all things, both in time as Jesus is the creator and in preeminence as Jesus is over all things. And so as we've looked at the book of Colossians and seen uh, the preeminence of Jesus, we've asked, what does that look like for us as disciples? What should disciples of Jesus look like in relation to the fact that Jesus is before all things? Uh, And so we're going to continue that conversation this morning, uh, specifically looking at the topics of work and rest. Um, work and rest aren't necessarily blatantly addressed in the book of Colossians, uh, but, but there are some things that are there that we can pull from Colossians as we examine this topic. I would commend two people to you as a follow-up to this morning's sermon who were incredibly beneficial to me in the preparation of uh, the topic of examining work and rest. Work and rest is not a topic that I have spent a lot of time examining in my life, but they're very important. And so two people that I would commend One is named Amy L. Sherman. She is a scholar and a writer who wrote a book a few years back called Kingdom Calling about uh, Christians and their vocation and work and rest. And then Tim Keller also wrote a book called Every Good Endeavor, which is about vocation and work and rest in the same topic. So I would commend those to you as a follow-up to this sermon simply because they are great resources. Uh, But as we get started this morning, I'm going to pray and we'll move on. Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to be present today in this place, to look into your word, to examine what you would have for us, a little bit about work, a little bit about rest, fully and wholly centered on the fact that Jesus has gone before us in all things. So Holy Father, over the next few minutes as we talk about some stuff and look through your word, I pray that you would... Speak to each and every one of us, to our minds and to our hearts. I pray that we would hear what you would have us hear. I pray that you would use me as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of the gospel, that Jesus would be glorified and that we would be drawn to you, that we would meet with you in this place. And Holy Father, we ask this in the precious name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. So I'm going to start off with an illustration this morning that Uh, is not unique to me, but I appreciated this illustration and what it serves and how it serves to carry along um, an example. So in just a second, there's going to be a picture up on the screen. Um, Does anybody know what that is? It's a duck. It's a harlequin duck, to be more specific. Uh, Does anybody know the scientific name for a harlequin duck? It's histrionicus, histrionicus, histrionicus. So if you were to leave the building right now and you were to go to cross Broad Street to go to your car, to get into your car to go home, and someone were to walk up to you and out of the blue just randomly say the scientific name for the wild harlequin duck is histrionicus, histrionicus, histrionicus. How would you make sense of that interaction? What would you do to help make what just happened make sense? For most of us, I think that we would probably start to tell ourselves a story 
about why this person would do this. We would make up a narrative. We would make up something to explain this pretty unusual interaction. Our gut instinct would be to say, that person is a little off. Something's not right. Or we might say, that person is under the influence of alcohol or that person is under the influence of drugs. Or we might get a little creative like Walter Mitty. And we might say, uh, this person has mistaken us for someone who yesterday at the library asked him, what's the scientific name for the wild harlequin duck? And then he saw us on the street and he came up and he wanted to tell us the answer. Or we could make up a story and say, this guy just came from his therapist's office and his therapist told him that he needs to stop being so shy. And he overcame that by talking about ducks. Or maybe if we want to get really crazy, we could say this person is a Soviet spy and he's waiting at a prearranged rendezvous point and when we walk up, he thinks that we're his contact and so he says the phrase that reveals who he is. Those are all ridiculous stories. Um, But the point being, when things like that happen, when something doesn't make sense to us, sometimes the best way to understand those interactions It's within the overall context of a story, within the greater narrative of what's going on. And I think for believers specifically, but overall, the topics of work and rest are best understood within the overall narrative, the overall story of Scripture. Because most people... Non-Christians and Christians alike, I think that most people tell themselves the story that work of any kind, whether it be paid work or some other kind of work, that work is just simply a means to an end. Work is a way to get money to buy groceries or uh, to save money for a comfortable retirement or work is a way to get money for a vacation or work is... is um, is money we just need to have for whatever reason. And resting, resting is just what we do when we're not working. And ultimately, right, some believers may be pursuing more Christ-like purposes for their money, the ability to tithe or the ability to give generously to missionaries or to some cause that a believer might support. But for most people, I think that our view of work itself is still, un, is still fundamentally unchanged. We still see work as a means to an end, whatever that end is. And we don't even consider the necessity of rest or the biblical story of rest. We're using work simply for what we can get out of it. We're in it for what comes on the other side of it. And God may be honored in the results of our work, but he is not supreme in our view of work and in our view of rest itself. And yet Colossians 3.17 says this, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Right? And so it's not, it's not just about honoring God with the results of what we do. It's about honoring God in what we do. In 
honoring God in how we understand what we're doing when we're working and when we're resting. If we're to live all of life for the glory of God, then we have to have a God-centered view of work. We have to have a God-centered view of rest and how that fits into the bigger picture. Right? It's not, it's not enough to try to honor God in how we do our work or that we try to be Christ-like when we're at work or that we support God's kingdom with the money that we make from our job or that we rest from our work to check off the box that we're keeping a Sabbath like Scripture tells us to, the glory of God must inform and transform our view of work and our view of rest. Right? So if we go all the way back to the beginning of the story, if we go all the way back to Genesis in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 2.15, God says this, or it says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Right? In the narrative of Scripture, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So in the, in the bigger story, where does this command occur? Does it occur before the fall or does it occur after the fall? It occurs before the fall. And so work is not a result of sin. Work is part of God's original plan for humanity. God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. That was part of God's original plan. Work is what people were created for on some level. I think Scripture would also bear out that people were created to worship as well, but work is part of what people were created for. And at the very beginning of the story, God created Adam and Eve for the purpose of working. If you go back just a little bit further in Genesis 1, 27 through 28, it says this, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Right? This language of subduing and having dominion is kind of like what God did, taking what's there and ordering it in a certain way. In Genesis 1, 27 through 28 that I just read, it's in essence a mandate to work. It's a mandate to create. It's a mandate to be involved. And God is mandating that the story of people be a story of working and creating and keeping what God has put in place. That Adam and Eve will produce children who will create families, and those families will band together into cities and social networks. And these networks of human beings will reflect all aspects of human culture, language and art and music and food and philosophy and theology. And all of that necessitates all sorts of work that is good. Work for our families. Work in our homes. Work outside our homes. Work that we get paid for. Work that we don't. Work for our communities. Whatever type of work it might be. Right? And it's no accident that the ultimate biblical picture of redeemed humanity at the end of Revelation involves a city. Right? It, it starts in a garden, but it ends in a city. And every step along the way, I think God intended for there to be work and for people to be at work to glorify God 
by working. And men and women were created to turn the entire earth into a showcase of the glory and beauty and majesty of God, working for it and caring for it as God intended. Right? So work was God's design from the very beginning. And He intended Adam and Eve to work all the way from the garden to the city. The ultimate goal of the story was for every aspect of life and culture to be satisfied with the beauty and the glory of God through the work of people. Right? And Jesus has gone before us in this very way. If you remember from Colossians 1.16, Colossians 1.16 says that by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Right? Jesus is the author of creation. Jesus is, is, is a worker. Creation was Jesus' work. And Jesus continues to work right through ongoing acts of providence and provision for His people. Jesus continues to, to work through the ongoing act of restraining evil in our world that's not yet completely seen the restoration that God has for us. Jesus continues to be at work through the ongoing process of restoring creation where all of the world is headed. Jesus has gone before us in work. And if Colossians tells us that Jesus is the original creator, when we look back in Genesis and we look at the creation story after God works, he says it's good. It's good. He calls his work good. Right? If we move on in the story of Genesis, though, we get past Genesis chapter 1. We get past Genesis chapter 2. We see that the fall occurs after creation has taken place, right? When God has placed his people in the garden to work it, they sin and everything is affected by the fall, including work. So then when you get to Genesis 3, 17 through 19, it says this, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Because of the fall, work is hard. Because of the fall, work involves sweat and toil and thorns and thistles and stress and overtime and belligerent bosses and mundane meetings and jobs that we hate. To go even further, our culture has turned work into an idol. From the day we are born, our friends and families and our teachers tell us that we could be anything we want to be. That if we study hard enough, that if we work hard enough, that if we try hard enough, that if we put enough blood, sweat, and tears into it, then we can achieve our dreams. And we believe this and we start to build our identities on the work that we do and how that work will define us, and how that work will give us meaning and purpose. And we begin to build our identities around our work, and we begin to worship something other than the Creator. Work has been cursed, but God created us to work. Work has been cursed, but God is still redeeming work. What we have to understand when we look at work is that work has great spiritual significance because it's a chance for God to be glorified through our work, whatever that might be. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3.17 that I read earlier, 
Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Right? When you work, you're working for the glory of God, not for your glory. And when you rest, you're resting for the glory of God. Work and rest has great spiritual significance because through them both, we glorify God. Right? And there's this symbiotic relationship that exists between work and rest. And I think we all get that on some level. We probably understand that even apart from understanding what God's Word has to say about rest. We get away from work in order to replenish our bodies and minds. We intentionally look for breaks for work. We intentionally look for vacations. We intentionally go to sleep at night. We understand that there's this relationship between work and rest. But to go one step further, to take it even further than that, practicing rest, or as Scripture would say, practicing the Sabbath, is a way to help us get perspective on our work and to put our work into its proper place. Not as something that defines us, but as something that glorifies God as we do it. And Jesus has gone before us in this way. Right, I said Colossians just a little bit ago. Jesus is the creator. And what does Genesis tell us about God after the creation of the world is complete? Listen to what Genesis says. It's the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 of Genesis. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. It's almost like God takes some time at the end of creation to sit back and reflect on his work, to reflect on the good thing that he had done, on his good work. And not only that, he blesses this idea of getting some space away from work and reflecting on it and putting it in the right place place and he calls it the Sabbath, this idea of stepping away and enjoying what's already been done, right? And to fully understand this concept of the Sabbath that God instructs people to take in the Old Testament, a a day of rest, um, let's look at a couple of passages from Scripture. The first comes from Exodus and the second comes from Deuteronomy, but Exodus 20, 8 through 11 says this, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 5 it says this, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And that the Lord God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. 
The first passage, Exodus 20, links the Sabbath day to creation. Right? So, so practically, since God rested after his creation, God tells his people that you must rest after your creation, after your work. And to rest is actually a, a, a way to enjoy and honor the goodness of God's creation in our own work. And to violate that rhythm of work and rest in either direction has the potential to lead to chaos in our lives. Deuteronomy 5, the second passage that I read, links rest to God's redemption. And specifically, verse 15 says, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. God portrays the Sabbath day as a reenactment of emancipation from slavery. It reminds us how God delivered his people from slavery to Pharaoh, where they were simply cogs in the machine to produce what Pharaoh wanted produced, just resources to get a job done. Tim Tim Keller says that if you're not able to heed God's direction to rest, then you're slaves just like the children of Israel were. If you're not able to heed God's direction to rest, then you are like the captive children of Israel. Right? Our hearts, they seek an identity through our work. Our culture lures us into wanting things and telling us that we have to work more and more and more to get those things or to build an identity. The organizations that we work for, they often have goals in mind that aren't centered around people. And if we don't have the ability to be disciplined in our practice of rest, then we ourselves might be in captivity to our own identity building or to something else entirely. The Sabbath is a declaration of God's freedom. The Sabbath, the ability to rest, the ability to practice what God has told us to, it means we're not in captivity not to our culture's expectations, our family's hopes, our, our school's demands, not even to our own insecurities and identities. It's important that we learn this truth that rest was created by God so that we might look back and enjoy our work and properly reflect on it, so that we might enjoy our freedom, ultimately, that comes through Jesus, right? And we've got to learn to speak this truth to ourselves because if we don't, we're going to feel guilty for resting. We'll be unable to truly rest and to truly celebrate our freedom and truly appreciate the work that God has given us to do. We'll be unable to truly glorify God in our rest. I would go one step further and say that we need to learn to think of the Sabbath rest and the ability to rest as an act of trust. It's kind of like when I go to sleep at night, I have to intentionally tell myself, I can sleep because God doesn't. I can rest peacefully because God is awake. I can lay down and sleep because God is acting and is sovereign. And to practice a rest that trusts in Jesus, that trusts in our Heavenly Father, is a disciplined and faithful way to remember that ultimately God is in control. God is the one who's running the world. God is the one who's providing for our families. God is the one who is keeping us in our jobs and in our work. Ultimately, it's God, not us. 
Listen to this from Luke chapter 6. This is a story about Jesus. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. In essence, Jesus is criticized because his disciples are harvesting grain. Jesus references an Old Testament story about David, but then he makes this point. Jesus, the Son of Man, is the Lord of Sabbath. Another way to say that is that Jesus is the Lord of rest. The Son of Man is the Lord of rest. We can rest. We can glorify God in our rest because Jesus is the Lord of rest. And we can trust that what God has for us is ultimately good. And so that when God tells us to work, we can glorify God through that. And when Jesus tells us to rest, we can trust that it's good and that what we're doing is good because Jesus is the Lord of rest. Right. So with all of that said, where does that leave us this morning? And there are just a few things I want to talk through here to give you as we walk away. Number one... Work and rest, they are part of the bigger story of what God has called us to. Creation and work and Sabbath rest, we work and then we celebrate that work by resting. We work and then we get away from work to reflect on our work. We we work and then we rest because Jesus has gone before us and Jesus has modeled those very things. Number two, we glorify God by the very nature of our working. And we glorify God by the very nature of our resting. Understanding both and practicing both are ways in which we glorify God because we seek to glorify God in all things. Number three, Sabbath rest isn't just an individual thing. I want you to think bigger about this for just a second. We might think that the benefits of rest come to us only as individuals, but that would be a mistake. Because God sometimes strengthens us and God sometimes gives us rest and props us up through the fellowship of community with other Christians. Right In Galatians 6, Paul tells us to carry each other's burdens. And so the, so the way that God sometimes encourages us and helps us to carry those burdens and helps us to rest is through the sympathy and encouragement of Christian friends that surround us. And that God uses to give us a time of refreshing and a time of support and a time of rest. Number four, let's let's trust God in both our work and in our rest. This symbiotic relationship between work and rest is how we model our trust in the Father. Let's not build our identity through our work. Let's worship God in our work. Let's practice rest and declare our trust in God as we obey his directive to rest, as we recognize that Jesus is the Lord of rest. And finally, let's remember that none of us will ultimately be satisfied in our work or in our rest apart from Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. We're going to enter into a time of response, and I would encourage you, uh, even now as we enter into this time of response, to maybe uh, reflect for a minute, to think for a minute about what it means to glorify God in our rest and in our work, what it means to trust God in our rest and in our work, what it means that God, that Jesus is the Lord of rest, what it means that Jesus has modeled what it means to glorify God through our work. Also, during this time of response, the band's going to come back up. Um, They're going to lead us in some songs and give us the opportunity to worship by singing uh, so we can stand and sing together and worship in that way. You have an opportunity to worship by giving. There's a giving table in the back where you can put your tithes and offerings and, and worship by remembering ultimately that God is the provider of all things. We worship by giving. We have an opportunity to take communion as well. You can come down these middle aisles, tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice, and so remember the body of Christ that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. We celebrate communion every Sunday here at Redemption because it's a visible way for us to remember what Christ has done for us and to proclaim to one another that we believe it. So if you're here and you want to remember what Christ has done for you and you want to proclaim that you believe it, that I would encourage you to come take communion and, uh, and remember that and declare that to one another. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll move on in those things. God, thank you for this reminder from your word that ultimately you are the creator, that you are the creator of work, that you are the creator of rest, and that work is good for us, and that rest is good for us, and that you've called us to glorify you in those things. Holy Father, as we close our time together, as we spend just a few more minutes in worship, I pray that you would continue to draw us to yourself, that you would continue to work in our hearts and minds, to draw us to you. I pray that Jesus would be lifted high in this place, that Christ would be glorified in Christ alone. Amen.